It's Thursday, March the 23rd. In this episode of Going Viral, Associate Professor Nigel Crawford explains Atagi advice, provides an update on boosters and the global COVID status, and discusses RSV vaccines and monoclonals. The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest on COVID-19 with leading voices from across Australia, providing medical professionals with up-to-date information from reliable sources. Here's today's episode. Hello, everybody. Um, Nigel Crawford here to give you an immunisation update. And thanks to the HealthEd organisers for inviting me back uh, to present to you um, today. And we're going to focus, obviously, not just on COVID-19 vaccines. We're into the fourth year of the pandemic, but lots of other things happening around immunisation on this first um, page here, there's World Immunisation Week in mid-April and really flagging that sort of uptake of the routine vaccines, including measles vaccines, is particularly important internationally as well as for travellers. We'll touch on that today. But I'm on the land of the Bunurong people, part of my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, any First Nation people listening to the Health Ed update today. My declarations of interest are there and um, just making it clear that these presentation presents my own views and not necessarily those of my affiliations. I have no industry declarations. So topics I'm going to cover today are the bivalent COVID-19 vaccines, We're obviously moving as mentioned into a new phase of the pandemic. We do have uh, different types of bivalent vaccines, which I'll describe in detail. So a little bit of an update on the monoclonal antibodies and antivirals for COVID-19, because obviously really important now that it's vaccines plus antivirals for those appropriate groups uh, to optimise their protection from getting severe COVID. I'm going to give a bit of an update on the seasonal influenza vaccines. We're with us very shortly. Uh, an update on monkeypox or mpox, now the uh, name we're using, Japanese encephalitis, as well as a bit of a horizon scanning and new vaccine coming quickly down the pipeline for, for RSV, I'll, I'll touch on as well. So in terms of the bivalent vaccines, these are the mRNA platforms. The other platforms have not been able to produce these bivalent vaccines quite as rapidly. So we are reliant on both the Moderna and Pfizer products are having these vaccines. They're using the ancestral strain or that original strain of SARS-CoV-2 plus uh, Omicron. So the first bivalents that came out were BA1 and that's what's been rolled out in, in the UK with very good impact still against severe disease. United States was very quick to authorise uh, the B45 bivalent vaccines, which are original plus B45. But again, very similar actually impacts over their winter months against severe COVID. So both of these vaccines very appropriate uh, for the Australian booster program. And in terms of the Itagi advice, really just jumping pretty quickly straight into that as the recommendations, rather than counting numbers in the past, we've had an up to date, you've got to count number three, four, five, you know, up to six vaccines, depending on um, your risk factors and number of doses. Now it's just a time point. So it's six months since your last dose of vaccine or your most recent uh, COVID infection, if you have had one, and that could be either on a rat or a rapid antigen test or a PCR. And the rationale for this is it's about what's called hybrid immunity. So a combination of both infection plus vaccination do give you a really robust protection against ongoing COVID. And we're accept, um, saying that that recent COVID, if you've had one, is actually a booster of protection. So save your vaccine up for later. And those that are recommended to have the vaccine are really those that are at higher risk of severe disease of five and over. It's not recommended currently for healthy five and over to have vaccine uh, boosters at this stage. It is recommended to consider for those 18 to 64 who are um, wishing to think about having a booster and in that window post-vaccine or infection. And the strongest recommendation for those over 65 are being asked to come forward to have a COVID-19 booster. 
as we start to approach our winter months also have their flu vaccine, which both can be given at the same time. So before we go into a bit more detail around the flu and COVID and other components, just touching base on the monoclonal antibodies. So these were medications particularly that were given at the time of exposure. So someone who was on chemotherapy for cancer treatment might have been given a monoclonal antibody such as Shield to protect them from um, COVID. Even if they were vaccinated, there was a potential benefit from this medication. Unfortunately, as the strains have changed or SARS-CoV-2 virus has moved down the Omicron uh, pathway as that variant, there's no longer protection from Shield. So there's been a bit of a pause on use of those medications currently. But the antiviral is still very much in the mix. And um, I'm a paediatrician, so not something we've been using frequently in, in, um, in paediatric space for severe COVID, there might be small isolated cases, but I know in primary care in particular, getting lots of questions from your patients about are they eligible for antivirals and what would be the best medication for them. And I recommend going to this uh, website, the National Clinical Evidence Task Force, has excellent resources. They've gone through the evidence. They've got a panel that, of, of a mixture of different experts to give those answers around what are the right medications to consider. And um, I'd recommend going to this website. Again, there's a QR code of how to access uh, those latest versions. Can be quite complicated. This is just the table for Paxlovid, acknowledging this is a medication being considered, but there are a lot of potential contraindications or modifications to their medications that might need to be considered. So really going to that risk stratification calculator, then if you find the medication, it is really important to go through those risk factors and get that medication, ideally within that 72 hours, it really needs to be started. Because uh, if you wait until longer after the infection started, the medications don't have a benefit. So just encouraging people, uh, those primary care physicians, to really consider these medications and, and go to those resources uh, as indicated. So in terms of the seasonal influenza vaccines, as, as mentioned, I, I know they're um, fastly, we're in the um, mid-March now and they're coming very quickly. So we're expecting to see some vaccines potentially in fridges uh, not too far away, official launch of the season normally in, in April. But it will be really important to consider optimising protection because we don't want to um, see potential you know, influx into our hospitals with both COVID, flu and RSV, which I'll touch later as another respiratory infection. So trying to minimise the burden of these infections is, is really important and particularly vaccination, really crucial. Uh, link to the ATAGI advice on the seasonal influenza vaccine is there. And the key point is it's the most uh, important and best way to protect from flu for any um, one over six months of age and even in that first six months of age it's maternal or antenatal vaccine that will protect that young infant. We've got to put those vaccines in the register so we can track how, uh, the, how the um, flu vaccine program is going and really trying to maximise protection particularly in those that are funded for national immunisation program vaccines or at high risk of, of severe disease. So this is just showing the different brands. And again, it gets a bit confusing by different brands and mills. They're fortunately all the same mills now, apart from that um, flu zone high dose quad, the furthest on the right there. In white are the ones that are in, on the National Immunisation Program. So these are the funded vaccines that are available um, as part of the NIP, but the rest of the vaccines are available on the market. Obviously different age uh, recommendations for the vaccines to be used in that under five years um, of age, as well as the uh, over 65 years of age, the Fluad quad, uh, is the NIP vaccine uh, for that age group. So trying to make sure you're getting the right vaccine to the right person uh, at the right time is, is crucial. This is again all on this table and it does outline here just the different um, vaccines. We do have some cell-based uh, vaccine products now coming, a little bit of different variations in the virus depending on it, the way the vaccine's um, made up, but essentially you know, very similar across that time.
matching to the Northern Hemisphere and our colleagues at the WHO Collaborating Centre at the Doherty in Melbourne, watching closely about how well the vaccines are matching. As mentioned, the funded vaccines for those at high risk, as well as all adults over 65 years of age, and importantly, six months to five-year-old children. Again, as a paediatrician, we saw lots of influenza at our hospitals uh, last year. We need to really make sure we're protecting those under fives because there is a real peak of uh, influenza in that, in that age group. And pregnant women, again, any stage of pregnancy, important to consider uh, influenza vaccine for that group. At the same time, considering their COVID-19 vaccine status, as well as whooping cough, uh, really important. So in terms of the timing of the vaccine, again, very hard to predict when the season might start. It was a pretty early and high season last year, so we certainly wouldn't recommend waiting for the flu vaccine. If you're in that eligible group, then we do recommend you present to your primary care physician to get your vaccine. And again, the GPs are recommending it for their patients. If they're coming in for other reasons, we should be recommending the vaccine as part of that visit, not missing opportunities to vaccinate wherever possible. Travel also really important. Our borders have opened up. We do see quite a bit of flu circulating now throughout the year, so making sure they get that booster before they travel. The vaccines now have an expiry date out to, to February, so while we've just had some of those vaccines expire, there's really only a short window in March where we don't have vaccine available, so flu vaccine can be recommended all year round, which is really um, important. If they did have a vaccine at the end of last year or 2022, still important to get that 2023 formulation, again, because of those uh, minor changes in the vaccine to try and match that strain and make sure you get the best protection over the course of the year. And the last dot point there was something I did flag a little bit earlier around measles with um, the World Immunisation Week, is that measles coverage has dropped significantly in some countries who, because of the pandemic and other reasons, have struggled to keep up with their primary infant schedule. Again, pushing for Australia to really maximise that protection. We give measles vaccine at 12 and 18 months of age. But if you're travelling overseas, you're not sure about your measles status, you'd also check that and check that with your primary care physician, as well as polio. There have been some circulating polio cases in a few countries, including some of the vaccine strain as we try to really get on top of polio. So considering both measles and polio as part of any travel advice, as well as flu, is really important. And as mentioned earlier, COVID vaccines can be administered at the same time as influenza. This is something early in the pandemic we did have a separation because we weren't sure about the safety, but there's enough data around co-administration. Certainly been recommended in the Northern Hemisphere over this winter to co-administer the bivalent vaccines with flu, no signals, uh, concerns around that year of age. So if um, patients do start to uh, arrive in the next few weeks, when you do have both in the fridge, do recommend they're given at the same um, time. And often the overlap of risk factors for 18 to 64 year olds for flu and COVID are quite similar. So trying to optimise that protection with both vaccines is, uh, is optimal. A bit in the text there around those bivalent vaccines. We are starting to get some B4, 5 vaccine now into Australia, but either bivalent is definitely appropriate and don't wait for a particular vaccine to, to arrive. Just giving a bivalent plus flu will optimise that protection. There's obviously ongoing monitoring of all of the different strains and what the optimal boosters may be into the future, but that's the current recommendations now in, in March um, 2023. So we're going to move on to a few different vaccines, including MPOX and Japanese encephalitis. These were really important programs um, last year, and particularly the Japanese encephalitis um, ongoing. There is some updated advice around the MPOX um, vaccine from December there that you can see. So again, there's um, the option for the Genios vaccine to be given intradermal. There were some supply issues and uh, a little bit of evidence around use of the vaccine in that um, administration route. That is a route that's being used for, for different vaccines and traditionally for, for BCG as an example. So really important in terms of GPs 
and their clinics having the expertise for intradermal. It can, however, now be administered via the, the standard um, route, so it doesn't have to be uh, intradermal with enough stocks. So that has changed, but can be used as required. There's updated guidance there in terms of use of the MPOX vaccine. I know a bit of an uptake around Pride um, Festival in Sydney. And again, at this stage, you know, happy that there's been good control of uh, the MPOX outbreak, both through vaccination and, and um, information sharing. So this is a really important program and more detail on the vaccine scenes available on the link at the bottom of the of the page. In terms of Japanese encephalitis vaccine, again, major climate, you know, last year with uh, the Murray-Darling floods and, you know, big impact on those communities. Um, there a lot of mosquito-borne infections circulating in Japanese encephalitis was one of those. It was identified in, in pigs. So you can't get it from the, the pig or the, the meat, but certainly as part of that vector transfer through pigs into mosquitoes and then biting humans and, and causing potentially Japanese encephalitis. There were a number of cases in, in 2022 identified. 2023, it's not been that many cases to date, but vigilance still extremely important, both in terms of minimising mosquito bites as well as being vigilant in terms of Japanese encephalitis um, vaccine being used for those that are recommended, which is uh, via the state-based immunisation programs. So there have been quite a few questions around the Japanese encephalitis vaccine, or will it protect from Murray Valley encephalitis? And this is an important question. Unfortunately, there's not much evidence around this. And while there's been some animal studies showing potential cross-protection, it's not a sort of authorised use for the Japanese encephalitis vaccine at this stage. But it does highlight the importance of what's been happening along the Murray-Darling River Basin and all those regional towns in particular. We need to maximise protection with the Japanese encephalitis vaccine, as well as making sure we're minimising mosquito bites, which don't just carry JE, but other viruses as well. So really that, you know, wearing long clothing, using insect repellent, and particularly in the evening and early morning when those mosquitoes are uh, at their most um, active and, and potentially transmitting these viruses. So the last part of the talk, I'm just going to move into a bit of horizon scanning. So this is just looking to the vaccines that are coming down the pipeline. And again, for those uh, listening to the, the presentation, we know that the mRNA platform technology in particular has generated lots of interest in vaccines, expect them to come through the clinical trials, phase one, two, three, much more rapidly, and then translate into protection from these, um, what will become vaccine-preventable diseases. And respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, is the one that's really coming rapidly down the pipeline and expect quite a few products to come throughout this year, which I'll just talk to uh, in more detail. In terms of horizon scanning more broadly, this is done by the National Centre for Immunisation Research for ATAGI, and they do have a public-facing document that just talks through what's coming down the pipeline and what different uh, immunisation communities around the world are, are looking at. So that's a, a resource there if people would like to look into more information. But in terms of RSV or respiratory syncytial virus, this virus doesn't look that dissimilar to COVID as you can see there, but it's a single-stranded RNA virus. And it's got two forms, and I've heard this recently described as a transformer in terms of how the, the way the virus works. And everyone's familiar with the spike protein of COVID. For this one, it's the F protein or the fusion protein. And there's a pre-fusion form and a post-fusion form. You can see there in the middle is the pre-fusion, on the right is the post-fusion. So quite a significant change in the virus as it attaches to the cell and brings the virus into that spell, particularly, obviously, respiratory, given the name. And we'll talk to the clinical features in a moment. But the vaccines and the monoclonal antibodies are targeting this pre-fusion F protein. But by and large, that's the main target at the moment for the current products. And the clinical presentation, again, showing my uh, angle of a paediatrician, the most um, 
sort of severe presentation and most common is a serious acute respiratory infection or SARI. And these are most common in under four years of age. Um, the most common illness is bronchiolitis. So again, everyone in primary care will have seen episodes in bronchiolitis. This increased work of breathing, often needing some oxygen, feeding support, very common presentation both to primary care as well as into hospital and can unfortunately at times end up in intensive care with uh, significant respiratory port in terms of uh, pressure and ICU. Uh, care for a few days. Majority of children do recover, but it can lead to longer term um, sequelae. There are those risk factors, again, particularly congenital heart disease and chronic lung disease, uh, often associated with prematurity, are two of the key highest risk factors. And there's just a link to the RCH Children's Hospital Clinical Guidelines on bronchiolitis and, and how to expect and, and management. We had seen a big change in the season initially with um, COVID lockdowns. Uh, it's traditionally a real peak in June, July is our peak of um, bronchiolitis in most um, jurisdictions and states across Australia, apart from the northern uh, states, particularly northern parts of Australia, where they don't tend to have the seasonality it can occur at any point um, of the year, similar to, to influenza. And as you can see there, this is just showing that kind of peak of um, cases normally in that uh, middle of the year, but it did change a little bit with the pandemic, but it has come back to that kind of window in, uh, in 2022 once the, the borders opened. And this is showing the international trend. So again, trying to think of any preventative product is not just how the season might work in Australia. Because if you're going to give a vaccine or a treatment, you want to give it to make sure you've got maximal protection in that peak of season. And most of the products are looking like they've got three to six months protection, not that dissimilar to, to COVID. So you really want to time your vaccine uh, schedule to really fit that season. You can see though that over the last few years, it's been quite variable and different countries have had different um, variability. This is coming from a WHO surveillance project. So can be a lot of variability and the way this vaccine might roll out will, will need to vary by region. This is just a snapshot of all the different um, products that are in the pipeline. This comes from PATH on the website. Again, can look into more detail. Just focus here on that phase three or middle panel. Um, there's the a GSK has a um, RSV vaccine product in 60 and over, which is progressing quickly. The Pfizer product is both um, maternal vaccine, so protection uh, during pregnancy to protect particularly the, the infant in that first um, six months of life. They've also got an adult 60 plus, so there's two vaccines in the adult space, 60 and over. Moderna also has an mRNA um, RSV vaccine into phase three studies. Again, obviously they're already looking at um, COVID-19 and potentially merging those vaccines. We might have COVID plus flu plus potentially RSV, either in bivalent or trivalent vaccine. So again, coming very quickly, there's some recombinant vaccines you can see there from uh, Johnson & Johnson in terms of uh, the vector vaccine, as well as the MVA platform, which is the same one, Genios for, for MPOX and also some monoclonal antibodies. So these are different, they're not vaccines, but they are producing protection. We have one licensed product, um, paliizumab, which we do give to particularly infants with congenital heart disease in that first year. There's some new products such as nisirvimab you can see there, which gives a longer duration of protection, so out to six months, and Merck also has a product. So again, can't go through every product in detail today, but just letting uh, my primary care colleagues in particular know that these vaccines are coming very rapidly down the pipeline and we are expecting over the next um, one to two years that we will have uh, vaccines plus or minus these monoclonal antibodies in the mix to try and make 
you know, RSV truly vaccine preventable, which is clearly exciting, but we need to really learn a lot more about these vaccines uh, as they come through those, those stages. In terms of the adult vaccines, um, I think it's really important that we do have to understand what RSV is uh, like in adults, because while I've mentioned it's really a major illness in, in young children, it's something we're trying to understand a bit more in adults. The multiplex testing for COVID does now include RSV as well as flu and COVID. And they're not being done in every state or jurisdiction, but we're certainly getting a lot more testing. So we're really looking at what the burden of RSV in those 60 and over, particularly in hospitals as well as aged care facilities, to see where the vaccine that I've mentioned in the 60 plus may potentially sit. So lots of interest in both the clinical epidemiology, the severity, and therefore how these vaccines may come uh, as we look into the horizon uh, over the next um, 2023 and 2024. So just going to finish there on this slide, again acknowledging my colleagues at the Melbourne Vaccine um, Education Centre and the Melbourne Children's Campus for all the support that we've um, provided to vaccines and our, our website at the bottom there is links in terms of resources that are available. If you have any sort of clinical questions or scenarios, we've covered lots of those at uh, the MVEC website. The picture here is unfortunately of an infant crying, but actually was just looking for some, some photos around the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. And this is actually Gerald Lynn, who was the person who had mumps and they took the virus from her and actually had that continually cultured to develop the vaccine. Uh, and that's just her there with a child who's being administered, unfortunately a little bit upset, but it does reflect that we need to really think about not just our new vaccines, but also the older ones to optimise protection, not just in Australia, but also regionally and internationally. And I think measles, MMR is one we need to have really high coverage in Australia that's ongoing. It has really high level of protection after one and particularly after those two doses, but also for those that are travelling uh, and also supporting vaccine uh, uptake and access in internationally is, is going to be crucial uh, over the course of this year. So thanks again to HealthEd for the opportunity to present today. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.